I'd like to thank you all for coming, and I mean you all. Uh, <laughs> I'm Vic Ryman. I'm the museum technician here at the Montana Historical Society. Thank you, Bruce. And Mary Guacas, who uh, spoke to you all just a second ago, is the floodplain outreach specialist at the Montana Department of Natural Resources. Together, we will be offering this afternoon a look back at the great Montana flood of 1964. And which it happened 50 years ago this week. And uh, after I look back, Mary will uh, look forward at the issues of living in a floodplain. Because I was an actual witness to the big flood of 64, I'll present first, and then uh, Mary will talk about floodplain management, which has been developed since the 1964 flood. And, uh, I imagine quite a few of you uh, witnessed the flood. How, can you raise your hands if you, uh, yeah, most of you. <laughs> so I, we were going to leave a little time for questions, but I, I think instead we'll uh, rather leave time for you all to share with us about your flood experiences. In the fall of 1957, my family purchased a two-and-a-half-acre riverfront property directly across the Sun River from the western part of Great Falls. And our land was situated on the outside of a bend of the river at a place where it cut into the lowest slope of Gore Hill. And that's the hill on which Great Falls International Airport is sited. Our 50-year-old four-square house sat less than 150 feet from the bank of the Sun River. Our large front lawn sloped down almost to the river itself. And because of the slope of the hill, our house was elevated some 15 feet above the usual surface level of the river, which was normally a placid and very muddy stream. It had general gradient and a slow current. Before and after the 1964 flood, it was common for us to launch a canoe on the Sun River, paddle easily upstream, and then uh, drift down uh, with the slow current back to our property. Now, when my parents bought the place on Sun River, they were aware that there had been a small flood only four years before, in 1953. And my parents understood that during the 1953 flood, the water had risen to cover an area of our property well below the house site. In a field to the south of our irrigated lawn, the ground was faulted and it had slipped, creating six-foot-tall sandbanks. We understood that this faulting was somehow the result of the 1953 flood, although we didn't understand the exact mechanism that caused the faulting. Unfortunately, after the 1964 flood, we would find out all about the causes of the faulting. Well, my family settled on the banks of the Sun River a century and a half after Meriwether Lewis had first seen the stream. In his journal entry for June 14, 1805, he described the river, which he called the Medicine River. Lewis was exploring solo ahead of the main party of the Corps of Discovery. And just before he arrived at the Medicine River, he had narrowly escaped being attacked by a large grizzly bear. And uh, this is a descendant of that bear. <laughs> Having forgotten to reload his rifle after killing a buffalo. In what is now a well-known incident in the Lewis and Clark journals, Lewis was closely pursued by the bear. He retreated waist-deep into the Missouri River and pointed his trusty espontoon, a kind of a short spear, at the bear as it hesitated on the bank of the river. And to what must have been Lewis's immense surprise and great relief, the bear wheeled around and ran. Lewis first reached the sun at a point across the river and about a mile down from the place where our house would be built a century later. And this is how Meriwether Lewis described the Sun River when he first saw it. My gun reloaded, I felt confidence once more in my strength and determined never again to suffer my piece to be longer empty than the time she necessarily required to charge her. I passed through the plain nearly in the direction which the bear had run to Medicine River, found it a handsome stream about 200 yards wide with a gentle current, apparently deep, 
Its waters clear and banks which were formed principally of dark brown and blue clay, which were about the height of those of the Missouri, of from three to five feet. And then he says, Yet they had not the appearance of ever having been overflown, circumstances which I did not expect so immediately in the neighborhood of the mountains, from whence I should have supposed that sudden and immense torrents would issue at certain seasons of the year, but the reverse is absolutely the case. I am therefore compelled to believe that the snowy mountains yield their waters slowly, being partially affected every day by the influence of the sun only, and never suddenly melted down by hasty showers of rain. Well, I think it's remarkable that in 1805, Meriwether Lewis recorded a succinct description of the exact causes of, of the flood, which would occur more than 150 years later. Um, failing to see the evidence of recent flooding, such as piles of debris and obvious erosion of the riverbank, he concluded that this type of flooding did not actually occur on the Sun River. In the late spring of 1964, hasty, that's torrential, showers of rain began falling in the snowy mountains along the continental divide of northern Montana, and the rivers east and west of the divide began to rapidly rise. The cause of this rapidly rising water had its root in the early spring when record amounts of snowpack from a series of late storms accumulated in the mountains. A cooler than normal spring kept the mountain snowpack in place until unprecedented heavy rainfall on June 7th and 8th caused the snowpack to rapidly melt. In a 24-hour period, 10 inches of rain fell at Lake McDonald in Glacier National Park, more than 8 inches at Browning, 11 inches at Hart Butte, and more than 13 inches southwest of Augusta. This torrential rain on the heavy snowpack resulted in major flooding on the Flathead River on the west side of the Continental Divide and on the Sun River and the Marias River and its tributaries east of, of the Divide. In addition, heavy rainfall caused flooding in areas as far away as Lewistown and Deer Lodge. Well, in June of 1964, I was almost 12, just out of sixth grade. My sister Barbara, was a year older. Our family was preparing to leave on an extended car trip to the East Coast when our parents called us in on the afternoon of Monday, June 8th, to tell us that our trip was on hold. The Sun River in front of our house was, would flood, and it would be a huge one. Now, recently, I asked my 91-year-old mother, and by the way, she's sitting right over there, just how our family had found out about the coming flood, and she couldn't recall precisely just how we found out. And I don't know for sure just how we found out, but it was certainly from one of our neighbors who took the afternoon Great Falls newspaper, The Leader. Under a banner headline, Sun Threatens Great Falls, the June 8th, Monday afternoon leader warned that major flooding was forecast by the U.S. Weather Bureau for the Sun River below Diversion Dam. And Diversion Dam is a small dam in the Sun River Canyon of the Rocky Mountain Front, about 60 air miles from Great Falls. I was just up there a week ago. It's still there. Uh, it's three and a half miles downriver from the much larger Gibson Dam, which I'll talk about a little later. The leader article delivered this shocking news. At the peak of the 1953 flood, the flow at Diversion Dam was 10,500 cubic feet per second. The gauge at Diversion Dam records up to 15,385 cubic feet per second. Flow this morning was considerably above the maximum reading. Overflow is expected to begin in the Great Falls area at about noon Tuesday and the Sun River will reach levels higher than 1953 flood levels by Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. Now, because our house was situated so high above the usual level of the river, we didn't believe that the coming flood represented any actual threat to its structure. And this photo was taken from a little hill behind our house. The actual level of the front of the house is about 
eight feet below the parking area you can see in the photo. Our friends who lived across the river in Western Great Falls were in imminent danger of losing their homes and possessions because the elevation of the ground there was much lower. Some of their houses had been damaged by the 1953 flood. The coming flood was predicted to be much worse. All over West Great Falls, people prepared to defend their homes and possessions as best they could. Most removed their most valuable things to higher ground. Sandbagging brigades were formed, and some owner, homeowners decided to remain at their homes to fight the flood with walls of sandbags and gasoline-powered pumps. The Red Cross almost immediately set up an evacuation center in West Junior High School, which was situated on top of a substantial hill overlooking the endangered low-lying areas of West Great Falls. The Red Cross arranged to bring in several experienced disaster workers from out of state to help staff the evacuation center. The June 9th, Tuesday morning, Great Falls Tribune carried news of the flooding disaster that occurred on the Blackfeet Reservation the day before. Unlike the residents of West Great Falls, the Blackfeet tribal members who lived in low-lying areas of the reservation had no warning when the streams suddenly rose. The Tribune reported that three persons had perished when a wall of water swept down Birch Creek after the collapse of the Swift Reservoir Dam, and that five members of a family, most of them children, had died in the Two Medicine Creek area. In the days after the flood receded, it became known that two dams had failed on the Blackfeet Reservation on June 8th, and a total of 30 people had been killed in the flooding. Swift Dam had collapsed on the morning of June 8th, sending a wall of water 20 to 40 feet high down Birch Creek at an estimated speed of about 25 miles an hour. Around 5 on the afternoon of June 8th, smaller Two Medicine Dam had also failed, inundating the Two Medicine Valley. The fatalities on the Blackfeet Reservation were tragically almost all children, and they were the only deaths caused by the major flooding which occurred from June 8th through the 10th. Ten days after the water receded, the superintendent of the reservation reported that 256 homes had been destroyed or damaged, and that 135 families were living in tents. <laughs> Officials estimated that it would take two years for the Blackfeet Reservation to completely recover from the destruction caused by the big flood. On Monday, June 9th, the day the two dams broke on the Blackfeet Res Reservation, a Forest Service pilot flew over the much larger Gibson Dam on the Sun River to find that water was overtopping the 200-foot-tall structure by some three feet. As the situation at Gibson Dam became known in Great Falls and the other smaller towns along the Sun River, there was much apprehension about the sort of destructive wave that would be released down the river if Gibson <coughs> Dam were to fail. The Tuesday, June 9th, Tribune reported flooding in Augusta, Shoto, Depuyer, Glacier Park, and Kalispell. Under the Trib headline, State's Worst Disaster, an article cited unidentified National Guardsmen directing search and rescue operation as calling the flood Montana's worst natural disaster. In the, excuse me, in the 50 years since, it has been repeatedly stated that the big flood of 1964 was Montana's worst natural disaster. And in terms of the loss of human life and property damage, it no doubt was. On June 9th, Governor Tim Babcock flew back to Montana from a governor's meeting he was attending in Cleveland and quickly met with top state and federal officials to coordinate their responses to the flood. And uh, this photo shows Governor Babcock on the left with officials who have pledged their full help uh, and the full help of their agencies to deal with the Montana flood emergency. Also on June 9th, President Lyndon Johnson declared nor eight northern Montana counties to be disaster areas. 
which cleared the way for substantial federal aid to be sent to the flood-damaged areas. Well, during the morning of the 9th, I don't think Barb and I really believed the Sun River was going to flood as was forecast. We walked down to visit our friends, Dennis and Mike Pete, who lived close to the river on the same side as we did. Dennis and Mike's folks thought they were high enough above the river to be safe, and we kids walked across the road to watch a crew trying to protect the Beacon Bar, our neighborhood landmark, <laughs> by piling up dirt to hold plastic sheeting against its back foundation wall. And I guess some of you have been to the Beacon. <laughs> Barb and I then walked back home to wait for the high water that was promised. Upstream, the crest of the flood was rapidly approaching. By mid-afternoon the 9th, my sister and I could clearly observe the rise of the Sun River as it began to spill out of its banks on the other side and creep up the hill on our side. Because the higher ground on our side of the river prevented the water from spreading out as it rose, we could watch the river rise inch by inch. It was weary. It wasn't only weary, it was eerie to <laughs> casually stand on the very edge of the advancing great inundation. We were amazed at one point to discover on the edge of the rising water several substantial weeds that were completely coated with ants to the diameter of a pencil. The ants seeking higher safety as the water rose into their anthill. At about that time, a neighbor watching the flood from the top of a nearby bluff yelled at us to get away from the water's edge for our safety. We moved to, the, uh, to another place behind a large Caragana hedge, which was out of his sight and continued to closely monitor the rising water, <laughs> encroaching onto what had always before been dry ground. At the same time as Barb and I were fascinated by the rising water, the crest of the flood began to arrive at small towns upriver from Great Falls. Low-lying areas of Augusta, Sims, Fort Shaw, Sun River, Vaughan, and Manchester were covered with water. Some people who had lingered in the path of the flood were trapped by the invading water and had to take refuge in trees and on top of buildings. This is a photo of Roger Fats being rescued near Vaughan by a National Guard helicopter. He had become trapped by the quickly rising water while he was trying to save uh, some cattle from the flood. And, and this is an amazing photo to me. It shows water pouring over Central Avenue West in West Great Falls when the crest started to arrive. As the crest of the flood began to arrive from upstream, the situation was becoming grim in West Great Falls. About 4 p.m., Sun River water began pouring into the city. The first areas to be inundated were the neighborhoods on either side of Central Avenue West, where the land was the lowest. As the river rose, adjacent areas went underwater. Well, Sun River in modern times is always very muddy, as you can see if you look at it at its confluence with the Missouri just below Warden Bridge in Great Falls. The ultra-muddy water of the sun is slow to mix with the clearer water of the Missouri. And the demarcation between the waters of the two rivers is visible for several miles downstream. During the 64 flood, the surging energy of the Sun River water allowed it to pick up even more mud so that the stuff that swamped people's basements and, uh, and filled their houses covered their floors with a thick layer of putrid mud. The flood water also carried sewage, spilled gasoline and diesel fuel, the contents of feedlots, and the carcasses of unfortunate cows and horses that had not been able to escape from the rapidly rising water. So the contact with the water represented a potential health hazard. In late afternoon, the crest of the flood began to arrive at our location. The river covered our neighbor's large field and their riverfront woodlot. Now in this photo, you can clearly see the angle 
of our big front Karagana hedges uh, projecting out into the water there in the middle of that circle. We began to see small buildings float past, a flotilla of tool sheds being carried towards St. Louis. <laughs> there was an occasional dead large animal, and once we saw a gopher, a, a ground squirrel, pitiably running back and forth on his plank raft as he was rapidly swept down the river. There were also all sizes of driftwood from small branches to very large logs. In clear view, just downstream from our place was the 14th Street Bridge, a single lane structure constructed in the early 20th century. As the river rose, the waterborne objects, large and small, smashed into the side of the bridge and then ducked under. Because it carried water and sewer lines and other utilities, the authorities were very fearful of the consequences should the bridge fail. And later that night, the water actually flowed over the deck of the bridge. But the 14th Street Bridge would survive the flood in sound condition, only to ultimately be dismantled in the 1980s when a levee was finally being constructed. In the late afternoon, a KRTV television news van showed up and the crew aboard asked my parents to allow them to film. Um, since it was the only place still accessible where they could see the normal course of the river, and my folks uh, easily granted them permission to film. Shortly after the television crew started filming, sightseers began to arrive and stationed themselves at places on our property which offered them a good view of the flood. One enterprising group even scaled to the top of our horse shed to gain a better vantage point from which to enjoy the disaster. My dad quickly had enough of this and evicted the gawkers from our property. In early evening, the river began to rise even more rapidly and the water crept up our front lawn toward our house. And we saw even more assorted objects being carried by on the flood. Our large pump house, a substantial rustic structure, freed itself from its foundation and floated downriver to slam into the 14th Street Bridge. Across the river in West Great Falls, homes that had escaped the 1953 flood began to take on water. Before dark, the water rose no less than 10 horizontal feet from the front of our house. A rise of less than a foot would have brought the muddy water lapping against our foundation. Shortly after dark, we all turned in except my mother, she's sitting right here, <laughs> who stayed up until the crest of the flood passed just after midnight and she could clearly see that the water was beginning to recede. The top headline of the Wednesday, June 10th, Great Falls Tribune screamed in red, Rampaging Sun River Hammers Southwest Great Falls Homes. The article beneath it reported, water rose two feet an hour, two feet an hour, as the flood crest moved rapidly toward the confluence with the Missouri River in the west part of the city. Property damage and livestock losses mounted by the minute and were running into the millions in the Sun River area alone. Weather Bureau officials predicted the crest would be five feet higher than the 1953 flood. Water was 10 feet deep at points on Central Avenue West at 9 p.m. and still rising. Morning light that Wednesday revealed that more than a square mile of residential districts of West Great Falls was underwater. In low-lying areas, the filthy water reached almost to the ceilings of the flooded houses. But luckily, Gibson Dam had not collapsed or the flooding would have been much worse. On our side of the sun water, oh, let me try that one again. On our side of the sun, water from the Missouri River had been backed up and forced ashore when the crest of the Sun River flood arrived at the confluence so that parts of the country club, including the golf course, experienced relatively minor flooding. Now you would expect 
that such major flooding would result in a general exodus from the area that had been flooded once the water went down. Surprisingly, that is not what happened in West Great Falls after the big flood. On Thursday, June 12th, the Great Falls Tribune published a map on its front page of an Army Corps of Engineers flood control project that had been presented to the city of Great Falls in 1960 and sub subsequently rejected by the city. And uh, this is a doctored photograph that the Corps put out to show that where their proposed levees would go. Um, the Corps of Engineers flood control plan called for the construction of eight miles of levees, mostly along the north bank of the Sun River. We lived on the south bank. And um, the proposed levee project had been devised by the Corps in response to the 1953 flood. The levees were eventually constructed in the early 1980s, almost 20 years after the 1964 flooding event. Before the levees were actually built, there was another smaller flood on the Sun River in 1975. In the 30-some years since the levees were completed, there has been one relatively small flood on the Sun River in 2011. The levees easily contained the 2011 flood. In the end, no levees were constructed on the south side, our side of the Sun River. So with the prospect of protective levees in their minds, the people of West Great Falls shoveled the mud off their floors, tore out their carpets, drywall, and wiring, and began to rehabilitate their homes. Today, if you drive around the area which was underwater in 1964, it's hard to believe that the Sun River flooded so far 50 years ago. My family's house had been high and dry during the flood. We thought we dodged the bullet. Within a year, the ground began to move. Vaults appeared in the ground in the form of sandbanks, like those we'd noticed when we moved in in 1957. And cracks open in the ground that I could completely hide in, and I really enjoyed doing that, too. Uh, the front wall of our house pulled away from the rest of the structure by several inches. Our neighbor's house had to be torn down because a fault appeared right under it. A geotechnical engineer told my parents that the big flood had washed away what he called the toe of the river. And the angle of repose of the ground all the way to the top of Gore Hill was destabilized, and the hillside was on the move toward the river. Following the advice of the engineer, my parents had a huge hole dug between our house and the river and arranged to have it filled with heavy stone rubble. The engineer explained that this huge weight would prevent the ground our house was on from moving any farther toward the river. The rubble came from an old brownstone that was being demolished downtown. One single stone was so massive that its weight broke the frame of the first truck that it was loaded onto. We cabled together the foundation to stop the front of the house from leaving home. I learned to run a jackhammer at age 15 since my dad was away during uh, much of the project. After these measures, the ground in front of our house stopped moving and the structure was saved. My father told me later that he didn't enjoy a good night's sleep until he sold that place on Sun River more than 10 years later. <laughs> so, what were the costs of the great flood of 1964? 30 people died on the Blackfeet Reservation in the horrific inundations of June 8th. Over the entire area of the flood, 350 people required medical treatment for flood-related injuries. 8,500 people were evacuated. The flood destroyed all types of property, public and private. Dams collapsed. Houses and their contents were completely destroyed or severely damaged. Livestock in low-lying areas was swept away and drowned. Bridges were washed out or made useless when their approaches eroded away. 
Sections of roads and highways collapsed, and in some cases, long sections of railroad tracks were left dangling in the air when their roadbeds were washed away. Once pristine stream beds were ripped apart to become jumbled piles of boulders and gravel, and valuable timber was uprooted and carried away. Because of loss of habitat, fish population suffered as a result of the Great Flood. Well, now, who would have thought that a fish would suffer in a flood? Uh, government estimates in 1964 placed the expense of the big flood at $62 million. That's almost half a billion in today's dollars. And, of course, it's impossible to place a monetary value on human suffering and grief. From the perspective of 50 years, it's difficult to draw conclusions about the horrendous events of 1964. It's easy for us to conclude that people shouldn't build in floodplains. That's where the best building sites are. People continue to live in floodplains even though they have some awareness of the risks. And from time to time, when rivers rise, they deal with the consequences. Perhaps most important of all, recalling the 1964 flood reminds us that nature is capricious and that humans can summon great courage and resourcefulness when faced with an unanticipated and life-changing act of nature. Thank you. Next, we have Mary Guacas from the Natural Resources. First off, I want to say thanks to Vic, who gave a very valuable personal account of what happened as he saw it along the rising water of the Sun River. I'm going to get my PowerPoint up here. And I'll mention that um, we're going to allow time at the end of my presentation to um, welcome some brief comments from, I, from those of you who um, experienced or have some sort of memory you'd like to share with the group regarding the 1964 flood. I was amazed at the number of hands that rose when Vic asked who who has a memory of the 1964 flood. Oh, okay. I don't. One of the things by hearing about the um, the sharing of the toll of the of the flood reminds us of the of the value in taking safeguards against future flooding. And I think most of you in the audience are are familiar with where we're talking about. Um, the Sun River flows into to Great Falls, but for those of you who aren't familiar with it, I just wanted to give you a, a brief look of what it looks like. Um, unlike Vic, I was only three at the time of the 1964 flood, and unfortunately, I have a I. I have a different perspective than Vic. Um, I was born in Wisconsin. I got closer to the 1964 flood floodwaters when my family camped and visited Glacier National Park. That was when I was in the fifth grade. I love the outdoors and the mountains and hope to live in Montana someday. I went to college and studied forestry and resource management 
and went on to do forestry and park kind of jobs, including seasonal work in Glacier National Park. On a bit of a side note, before settling into a permanent job with the state of Montana as a floodplain outreach specialist, I did get in a backpacking trip, which started from Swift Dam. As I hiked into the mountains towards the Continental Divide from Swift Dam, at the time I had no idea that I was walking where floodwaters punched out a dam that led to the deaths of over two dozen people from the Blackfeet Nation. So my perspective is different from Vic's. I learned about floods and floodplain management from a more objective, bureaucratic, shall I say, slant. In fact, floodplain management was just getting on the radar in 1964. So what am I referring to when I talk about floodplain management? In simple terms, it's recognizing that certain areas are lower in elevation, are more susceptible or prone to flooding, and hence, there is prudence in having these areas as open spaces for agricultural uses, or if there are to be structures built, that they be elevated. In this case, the structure was elevated, but there's no safe access to it. This was from flooding in the Gallatin in 2008. So floodplain management is about reducing the flood losses well before the alarm sounds. Perhaps many years before the alarm sounds. Before floodplain management, the more common way the country approached floods was to use structural measures to control the floods, to build dams, as we, we've seen pictures of, and levees. And this was a task this was tasked to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers by Flood Control Acts. The first one that I know of was in 1917. So our country's been dealing with flooding problems for a long time. Subsequent acts were 1928, 1936, and 1958. There's a reason why I pause for that one. And the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers established a flood Plain Management Service in 1960. Again, the word floodplain management creeped into the a Senate committee in Washington, D.C. And among their recommendations is that the federal government delineate flood-based flood hazard areas and encourage enactment of land use regulations for floodplains. We're talking of the time here after the Ryman's bought their house, but before they sat watching the water rise. However, it wasn't until four years after Vic and his sister Barbara watched the Sun River rise that floodplain management took on a big seat at the table to deal with floodplains. It was in 1968 that the National Flood Insurance Act was established. The purpose of the National Flood Insurance Program made good sense. I'm going to address this slowly, but on a national scope, the idea was to transfer the costs of property flood losses from all taxpayers to those living in higher risk areas, allowing those people to purchase flood insurance. It would also provide floodplain residents with some financial aid after the floods in, for those floods where there wasn't a declaration, a presidential declaration, as, as Vic alluded to with the 1964 flood. It would also guide development away from flood hazard areas. And there would also be benefits with it for um, habitat and for um, filtering pollutions for using those floodplain areas for those purposes that would reap a number of benefits. And the 
guiding of the development away from the floodplains would be by local authorities. Lastly, require that new and substantially improved buildings be constructed in ways that would minimize or prevent damage during a flood. So, things moved forward with the National Flood Insurance Program years after the 1964 flood. The first flood insurance policies were sold in June of 1969. Does anyone want to take a wild guess how many policies were sold in the country by December of that same year? A, a, a good guess. Um, six, 16 have been sold in the country. And so, in a sense, um, Congress had to go back to the drawing board. Even though flood insurance was available, the concept of floodplain management was coming, it wasn't necessarily being bought. And so in order to, um, to strongly encourage the, the purchase of, of flood insurance was that when people purchased a property that had a federally backed loan, that property had to have flood insurance. So the number of policies, policy holders, I don't know the exact number of policies, but then in 1973 jumped to 300,000 policy holders. So the idea, we, we as people typically, addressing risk is a hard thing to do. And, and you know, we like to think that things are not gonna happen to us. And the flooding isn't gonna happen to us, I'm not going to health problems. I'm not going to need auto insurance. Um, unfortunately, things do happen. Um, the country progressed, and I'd like to say Montana progressed in well, as well in the, in the floodplain management concept. In 1971, our Montana legislature passed the Floodway and Floodplain Management Act. And it's a good time that I mention the difference between the floodway and floodplain. So a floodway, in, in technical terms and for insurance purposes and regulatory purposes, refers to an area of this, the stream and adjacent to the stream needed to carry floodwaters. So the kinds of activities in here are going to be more stringent than, than those in the outer areas or the flood fringe of the floodplain. So floodplain permits would be needed for communities that participate in the National Flood Insurance Program. If you're adding rubble, Vic, or excavating, doing stream crossings, putting in riprap, those are all things that are going to affect how the water is going to carry. It may affect not only your property, but other people's property. Because when we deal with floodplain management, the losses, you may be protecting yourself, but, the, but you could also be damaging your neighbor. And so it's, it takes on a, a different scope, and I, and I know it can be kind of a sobering, sobering topic, but it's one that we know of the great losses that com can come from flooding that were proactive in doing these things. Also, Montana was, was proactive in saying that they would allow no new residential structures in floodways. That even though a person could elevate, they didn't want structures potentially going down river, like the Fotilla that um, Vic talked about, because those things can hamper up someone else downstream. And I am not an engineer, but I do want to let you know that in the floodways, there is survey work and engineering work done. Um, in the when culverts are put in, bridges and such, so that we we are examining the um, the components of the floodway. Um, we know that that 1964 flood was big. I know there's someone in the room who was on west of the Continental Divide where this photo was taken, and this was a National Forest Service culvert and the damage that it incurred as a result of that. So what goes on in our floodways it is important. 
our floodplains are, are less stringent regulations. Um, permits are needed for most activities, and, and new structures, say houses, may be permitted, but when the elevation is such that it's out of, um, out of the greatest harm's way. As we continue kind of along this, this history of the National Flood Insurance Program being initiated in 1968, um, I'll, I'll note that the, this map of Grand Falls showing the flood risk areas was created in 1974, revised in 1975, and that um, the city of Great Falls joined the National Flood Insurance Program in 1977. The county joined in 1980. This was the ex, uh, evacuation map that was used in 1964. And to give you an idea of what the map looks like today for recognizing the flood hazard in the area, it's in a digital format. I could go online and we could go through the area and see um, where the hazards are. I mentioned the floodway, that's mapped in this area, needed to carry those flood waters. This is the floodplain, so I would, um, where if someone's living there already, they, they're, they're grandfathered in, so to speak. But being in a floodplain, as Vic mentioned, you wanna take extra safeguards with where you're, you're you're storing your things and what your basement is being used for. This area is shown as an area that's being provided protection. The flood, this, this map is interesting because it reflects floodplain management as well as flood control. So as Vic was talking about earlier, there was, there, there was proposal for the, for the levy before the flood. There was a levy constructed between 1981 and 1987. And this photo was taken in the flooding of 2011, and you can see how the homes, oops, how the homes behind the levy were secured. You look at the, um, at the floodway along here. And you see the same lineup on our map. This is the um, storage lake that you can see outside of the levee. And there's in relation to what you can can see here. So the, the, the mapping, I, I know some people think that it's a, you know, it, it may be done in a haphazard way. The, like, again, I'll, I'll mention that I'm not an, a surveyor engineer, but there is science that went into this map that's now in Great, in Great Falls, and this map was developed in 2013. It was, it became effective in 2013. Um, I'll show another photo, an aerial perspective um, of the flooding along the Sun River, and you can see it in relation to the map, the floodway, the recognized floodplain. Some of you um, from Lewis and Clark County might be wondering, well, what about our county? What about here in the Helena area? And so I wanted to show you that uh, the flood hazard map has also been um, created in our county. This is from 2012. Some of you might recognize the old federal building. And you might not have been aware that there's flood hazard 
up that area from that. So actually, with within the city of Helena, we have we have fewer flood hazard, far fewer flood hazards in, along the Sun River, but that they they are being identified. Like here, you can see the the cross sections of that flood hazard area, um, marking off the elevation. Um, that's referred to as a base flood elevation for the, for the flood risk. So compared to 1964, when there were no Montana communities um, enforcing any kind of land use regulations related to, to floodplains, there are now 134 communities in the state that participate in the National Flood Insurance Program. There are um, that the reasons why some of the counties are yellow is because they do some extra things in the county to actually gain some insurance discount for people in the county. And that's both for Lewis and Clark County and for Cascade County. Here in uh, Lewis and Clark County, Paul Spangler serves as the county disaster and emergency services specialist as well as the local floodplain administrator enforcing the, the county's regulations with regards to activities done in the floodplain. I just want to make sure that I've done my job with um, bridging some information from the 1964 flood. From Vic's personal um, perspective, my sharing with you my um, perspective on floodplain management, I'm going to give you a little quiz. So when someone plans to build or do something in what might be a floodplain, and they live in a community that participates in the National Flood Insurance Program, they should contact their local floodplain administrator. And who's that in Lewis and Clark County? Paul Spangler. Or So thank you very much for um, attending our presentations. Um, we do have, a, I, I know there are people in the audience who have um, some memories that they would like to share. So if you need to leave right now, um, feel free to do so. And the rest of us will um, wait and um, welcome the opportunities of people who have other firsthand experience of that 1964 flood. George Slosser and I live here in Helena. Do you want to use the microphone? <clears throat>